to a Hope 103.2 podcast. There's a temptation to view our regular church services as only vaguely related to the proclamation of the gospel to the world. Some view church services as mere in-drag, they say, as opposed to true outreach or going out into the world, into the marketplace with the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for marketplace evangelism. And I've greatly enjoyed my own involvement in business lunches and pub nights and various other innovative outreach events over the years. My point is, the Bible accords a significant place to the normal gathering of God's people as a means of declaring God's truth to the world. Research by sociology professor Rodney Stark shows that one of the key reasons churches grow is that their members simply invite their neighbours to church. Without at all wanting to discourage innovative outreach, I want to continue the theme of our last reflection. It's a theme that is sometimes neglected in the modern church. The gathered public praise of God's people. In other words, what we do in church once a week is a powerful promotion of the gospel. Last time we saw this theme in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 57, 66, and especially Psalm 96. Not surprisingly, two texts in the New Testament echo the same thing. Christian gatherings, by their very nature, are a means of proclaiming the splendor of God within earshot of outsiders. Glenn Davies, a New Testament scholar and the Anglican Bishop of North Sydney, calls this aspect of our mission doxological evangelism. That is, evangelism through declaring God's doxa, his glory. This expression, doxological evangelism, may sound very nerdy, but it actually captures perfectly the idea contained in the first of our New Testament texts. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. The Apostle Peter, who had grown up with the public praises of the synagogue of Capernaum, urges his largely non-Jewish readership to continue the same tradition. So he says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The theme of promoting the gospel looms large in the middle chapters of 1 Peter. In 2.12, the apostle urges believers to live such good lives that their pagan neighbours would end up glorifying God. In chapter 3.1, Peter drives the point home by urging wives to win their unbelieving husbands to faith through godly conduct. Then just a few paragraphs later in chapter 3 verse 15, he calls on all of us to give an answer for our faith. Given the missionary thrust of these middle chapters in 1 Peter, I wholeheartedly agree with those who see evangelism in the words of 1 Peter 2.9, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. But what type of evangelism is Peter talking about? I once assumed and taught that the apostle was talking about personal evangelism. I interpreted the phrase, declare the praises, to mean something like, Tell the gospel to your friends and family. Now, that was probably a bit hasty. The expression, declare the praises, is a liturgical one, to use an old-fashioned but useful term. It comes straight out of the Old Testament's description of Israel's public praise, with its creeds, prayers, 
and ever-present psalm singing, its songs of praise. When you consider also that doxological evangelism was already well known in the biblical Judaism of Peter's day, it seems far more likely that the apostle is talking here not about conversational evangelism, but about the evangelism that goes on when God's people gather to celebrate in word and song the saving wonders of the Lord. It's the same thing we saw in Psalms 57, 66, 108, and of course Psalm 96. Peter's words are strongly evangelistic without actually having anything to do with what we call personal evangelism. This interpretation is confirmed by the fact that Peter's description of Christians here in 1 Peter 2.9 deliberately rewords Isaiah 43 verses 20 to 21, which is a passage all about Israel's temple worship or the failure thereof. Israel's public worship had failed, says Isaiah, but it has been redeemed and transformed, says Peter, centuries later, in the new praises of the new people of God. The Christian community fulfills Israel's temple praise. Of course, the sacrificial dimension of the ancient temple service is gone. It's fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. But sacrifice was only one part of the ancient temple's purpose. The temple was as much a venue for praise, for psalm singing, public prayer, creeds and scripture reading, as it was a place for atonement. The book of Psalms, remember, was designed for the prayers and praise of the temple. The Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is Tehillim, which means praises. These spoken dimensions of Israel's temple service have not been done wa- again. These spoken dimensions of Israel's temple service have not been done away with at all. They continue on in the public gatherings of Christ's people. Through our readings, preaching, creeds, and our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 says, we do now what, according to Isaiah and Peter, Israel failed to do properly. We declare the praises of God to the world. This is a central part of our calling as Christians. As Peter says, you have been chosen that you may declare the praises of God. One reason for the central importance of praise is, of course, God's sheer worthiness. We need no other reason for viewing praise as a high and holy activity. But given the strong missionary theme in 1 Peter, combined with the equally strong Jewish biblical tradition of doxological evangelism, we are probably right to detect a secondary reason for the great importance of public praise. Through our praise, we announce God's mercy and power to those who overhear us, who have not yet been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, in Luke chapter 19, there's this wonderful example of how public praise can also function as a proclamation to those who don't yet believe. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, you may remember, on the first Palm Sunday, just before his execution, we're told this, Luke 19, verse 37. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In this case, the public praise of the disciples was not exactly effective evangelism. I mean, the Pharisees asked for the volume to be turned down, but it was evangelism nonetheless. The Pharisees knew exactly what was being declared in these joyful chants of the disciples. Jesus, according to their praises, is the Messiah, the promised King of Peace. A passage like this illustrates just how natural it was for the biblical writers to see our gathered praise as a public proclamation, as a type of evangelism. All true praise has the potential to be powerful gospel proclamation. It's a theme I want to explore further in our next reflection. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.